Father, we need you. You are an anchor for our souls in a world that often feels like a stormy sea. I know many in this room probably feel beaten down by the waves and wind that they've faced this week, either personally or just in our world in general. We gather here together to look to You for strength and encouragement and hope. For we know it's only found in You through Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit. We need Your Word this morning. So for all of us who come in here feeling weak and worn, I pray Your strength would rise up within us as we look to You in faith. In Jesus' name, Amen. I felt that prayer this morning. You ever have one of those Sunday mornings? You know, the ones that don't go smoothly before and on the way into church? (laughs) Pastors have those too. I I lost my wallet this morning and then I got here and realized I forgot to bring something the children's ministry needed. (laughs) So if you've ever had those mornings or if you're having one of those mornings, I feel you. I'm excited though because we are at the beginning of a brand new preaching series on the book of 1 Peter, and we called the series Stand Firm. Stand Firm. The the picture I had in my mind was that of a a lighthouse out in a stormy sea with the the light shining brightly, but the waves crashing against it, And, and there that lighthouse stands as a faithful beacon in the middle of the storm. I think it's timely because our world feels like a storm right now, does it not? What we know has happened, what is happening, even some of what we wonder what will happen tomorrow or next month. Locally, Prescott Valley has felt that storm. Maybe you've been aware of what's going on with the teenage population. Our mayor, Kel Palguda, Uh, shared that even before COVID-19 and everything else hit our world, suicide rates for teens were at a 20-year high. And then June 22nd, he said in the last three weeks, three teens right here in in Prescott Valley had had committed suicide. They, they, They felt the weight of the storm. Our family personally knows three marriages that have ended since all the chaos began in in the world. And maybe you know families who have been broken, or maybe you feel it yourself. We even have have a friend who said, I'm not only thinking about it all day long, I'm dreaming about COVID at night. I'm having trouble sleeping. Carolyn reached out and they, they, they talked and shared Scripture and prayed. And maybe you know the stress that some of those examples shared. Maybe you know your own stress that that's differently As I look at 1 Peter, I just want to look at you and say, man, if you're wrestling with some of these questions, like how do I hold on to hope when everything seems hopeless? This book is for you. How do I hold on to Jesus when I can't even see Him? And what I do see is trial after trial after trial. If you're wondering that, this this book is for you. How can I be faithful in a world that is so often pulling me, tempting me, 
the other way. And this book is for you. How do I keep on keeping on when I feel like giving up? This book is for you. Now a little context. This book was written in the 60s. Not the 1960s, which some of you remember or don't remember, depending on what you were up to. <laughs> but the, the actual 60s, like 60 AD in there, written by the Apostle Peter. He's probably in his 60s as well. About 30 years after his adventures with Jesus while he was here on earth. And he remembered, I'm sure, the beach with Jesus after Peter had failed to be faithful to Jesus and yet Jesus in His faithfulness reached out to Peter after the resurrection to restore him to ministry and He told Peter, shepherd the flock of God. And that's what He's doing in these two books. He is shepherding the early churches that were scattered in these locations Daniel read in, in verse 1. What's cool about some of those locations if you look at Acts 2, when, when Peter preached his Pentecost sermon, and people from all nations heard it and understood it in their languages, some of them were there from these languages. They probably went back to their country and helped start churches, and now older Peter is writing them to encourage them to stand firm, because he wrote this just before or at the beginning of the persecutions that began under an emperor named Nero. He's notorious for lighting his own garden by dipping Christians in pitch, impaling them on poles, and setting them on fire. Many believe Peter was writing from Rome. In chapter 5, he says he's writing from Babylon. Babylon was ancient at this point, the actual Babylon. We know in Revelation, many believe Babylon was used as a reference to Rome. Perhaps he said Babylon to stay undercover because of what was coming down the pike. And he's writing to these areas in Turkey to warn them, more rural areas, that, that if it hasn't hit your area yet, persecution is coming. Trial is coming. It's almost as though if something were to break out in Phoenix and, and someone wrote up here, hey, be ready. Be ready, it's coming your way. We know Peter remained faithful to the end. Many Christian scholars believe it was just a few years later that he himself died at the hands of Emperor Nero in the name of Jesus, crucified. Because he was faithful. And he's writing to, to encourage these early churches that come what may, stand firm. Like that lighthouse in the middle of the stormy sea. Stand firm. How do you do that? Well, let's look at what he says in these first 12 verses. 1 and 2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, are those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. As we look at these first 12 verses, I want to walk us through three things that are going to help you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, to stand firm during your trials. Whether they're personal trials or persecution from, from a world that is growing increasingly hostile to Christianity. 
How do I stand firm? The, the first thing Peter wants Christians to be aware of is you've got to realize you're in a tug of war. You're in a tug of war. He wants to consider the contrast of the fact that you are an elect exile. Those are two weird words to put next to each other because one has a really positive connotation and one can be kind of a, a challenging thing. Elect means that, hey, I am chosen by God. He's my father. He loves me. I've been adopted by him. It means I'm part of a family called the church, other believers in Jesus Christ. That's the good news. Exile means I'm a stranger in a foreign land. Many of you know that tension just between those two words. I'm loved by God, and yet walking in this world is difficult because I know I'm a stranger in this land, and I, I feel it. Peter's a, a guy that always calls it straight, right? You remember when many people were wrestling with who Jesus was? And, and Jesus looked at them and said, Hey, who do you say I am? It was Peter in Matthew 16 that said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter knows we need to call it straight, and he knows firsthand from his own failures we cannot live on the fence in our life with Jesus. We need to make a decision about who he is and how my life should look in light of that. So he looks at him and he says, you are an elect exile. Live like it. Live like a foreigner in a foreign land. He's as bold as his friend James. Remember James 4.4? 4, 4. James says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This does not mean we don't love people in the world. It means we don't line up with the world system that opposes God. We don't do all the things the world does because we are elect exiles. And when you feel that, if you've ever felt that, all of a sudden, you realize, I need some people around me. If I'm in exile here and I'm taking heat because I live for a different kingdom, i got to know who's got my six in military terms. Some of you military guys know what that means. I was explaining it to Evan the other day. We were out looking for gold. He, he likes gold panning. And we were walking out there and I said, do you know what that means when somebody says, who's got your six? And he said, no. And I said, well, it's like a clock, right? Straight ahead is 12. Six is in the back. Who's got your six means who has my back? Peter is writing the early church to say, number one, Jesus has your back. You are elect. So whatever this world throws at you, remember Jesus. But he's also writing throughout this book to say there's this group called the church that you need to not just go for an hour on Sunday morning, but you need to press into relationship with them because they got your back also. You may be a foreigner out here, but this is your, your family. You need them. That's why like in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You're, you're part of a new family now. God's family. Chapter 4. 
Verse 7 says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Why is loving one another important when the world turns against us? Because we need people who got our six. We need people who are going to encourage us to stay faithful no matter what comes at us. I think about exile. He says, you're elect exiles. And I think about the, the fact that I am an American Christian. I love America. And I believe there are times for us to stand up and speak boldly when we see the foundation and freedoms of our nation being eroded. But far above America, far above the American flag is this cross for the Christian. I'm first and foremost a citizen of heaven as a Christian. That takes my utmost loyalty. And I think about that. I think that's important for us as Christians to remember. I think we do speak up and stand against the erosion of our freedoms in our country, but we don't put our ultimate hope there. We put our hope in Jesus. Think about it this way. Jesus spoke of the church to Peter, and he said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What chance does a corrupt politician have? <laughs> so while I think we should speak up for our freedoms, I don't want the church to believe the lie that unless this happens in November, or unless this court case goes this way, we're in trouble. Guess what? Whatever comes down the pike, in the news, in America, our mission remains the same. To go and make disciples of all nations because it's that inward revolution that starts with Jesus in the heart that is the only revolution that will last. If I remember the book of Daniel, there's only one kingdom that remains forever and you won't find it on a map. It is the kingdom of God. While I stand for America, I stand first for Jesus and His kingdom. And that gives me hope. Peter wasn't writing to a church here in a perfect world, as I already alluded to when I mentioned Nero. But it was a church that was very effective in doing what they were there to do. We can remain effective in the power of Christ no matter what comes down the pike. So that's one tension we've got to wrestle with. We are elect, but we are also exiles. Trials and treasures is another tug of war. Trials, the, the grief we face in this world now is, is counterbalanced by the treasures of the glory that we will experience later in eternity. And that's a tug of war, right? Listen to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials." so that the tested genuineness of your faith, 
more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You, you heard about the trials, the gold and the fire, and some of you could say, yeah, I know what that is. I've walked in that furnace. Or I'm in that furnace right now. What's he say? It's like gold being tested. Right? When, when gold goes into the fire, what happens? The impurities are separated from the gold to make it more pure. And I'm telling you, part of God's plan when, when He allows a trial into our lives is that we press into Him and allow Him to, to strip impurities away, to make us more like Christ. It's not easy, but it's awesome. Think about the goal. One day we'll be like Christ in heaven. He's working us toward that end right now. I think of a Latin word, tribulum. It's where we get the word tribulation from, related to trial. You know what the tribulum was? It was a heavy piece of wood with sharp spikes that they would attach to an ox or a cow. And they put all their picked wheat on the ground and the, the cow would drag that tribulum over the wheat. And you know what would happen? The, the good beneficial wheat would be separated from the, the chaff. And the chaff would blow away. And what's good was left. It, it's true in our lives when we go through trials, if we press into God, it's also true of the church. Listen, you look at the New Testament. As we walk through trials, trials in this world will separate the faithful Christians from those who are only paying lip service to Jesus as long as He does everything they wish He would. It separates the faithful Christians from the fair-weather fans. I think about trial by fire and I think of those young Hebrew boys that would not bow. And I, and I think of their boldness before one of the most, if not the most powerful ruler in the world at that time as they said to Nebuchadnezzar, look, our God may or may not rescue us from this fire. Either way, we will not bow. Their, their faith was tested and it came out shining. I think Peter, as he challenged these folks to remain faithful in trials, I wonder if his mind went back to, to a sermon he had heard his master Jesus preach 30-some years earlier about different soils when he looked at people who hear the gospel. Right? Sometimes on the surface and Satan comes and takes it away. That's if you've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, but you've never turned to Him in repentance and faith. That's what he's describing. He, t he talks about one, the seed's planted, but it's, it's shallow and there, there's rocks and it starts to grow, but when the sun comes, it, it shrivels up and he says that's the, the folks that receive Jesus or, or speak His name in joy at the beginning, but once trials come, they say, I'm out of here. I didn't sign up for this. There's one choked by weeds. He says that's the worries of this world. They, they, they profess faith in Jesus, and then the worries of the world come along. Choke out that faith. And there's one, that one soil that, that takes root. Those who hear and receive the Word of God and allow it to do its work in their lives and it produces a harvest. Peter is challenging this group, be, be that one. 
Let God's Word take root in your life and bear a harvest, even in the hard times. Daryl shared an old adage this week that's, that's well-worn for good reason because it's, it resonates with you if you're in the middle of a trial. Maybe you're going through something right now. And you hear these things and you know they're true, but you're like, man, it's still so hard. And honestly, I feel like God is far away from me when I'm going through my trial. I feel sometimes like He's being silent. I pray and I'm not getting anything. And Daryl shared that old adage that says, if you're going through a trial and you're wondering where God's at, remember that often during the test, the teacher is quiet. Thank you, Daryl, for sharing that. But there's another tension. He says you have not seen Christ, but you still love Him. And believe him. And, and I wonder what that was like for Peter writing that, because he had seen Christ. I mean, he'd been on the mountain with him. He'd walked on the water and then sunk and saw Jesus pull him up. He, he saw him after the resurrection, but he's writing to people that he loves that had never seen Jesus in person. And that's a tension we wrestle with. I've never seen Christ with my physical eyes, nor have you. And yet, many of you in here would say you believe in him. You, you love Him. You know what that is? That's, that's faith. Hebrews talks about the importance of faith in this world. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Man, we need that right now, don't we? Verse 6 in Hebrews 1 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. The rest of the chapter gives all those great examples of men and women of faith. Some people call it the hall of faith. One of my favorites in there is Moses. Think about Moses growing up royalty in Egypt. All the perks and privileges that came with that. And yet God spoke to him and said, I want you to side with the slaves, my people, and lead them out. Oh, and by the way, it's against the most powerful ruler in the world right now, Pharaoh. But I love what Hebrews 11.27 says. It says, By faith Moses left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. What helped him stand up against the most powerful ruler in the world? Through the eyes of faith, he had his, his heart locked on God, a king far above Pharaoh and any other earthly ruler. You and I need the same. Okay, so th those are some of the tensions, the contrast. Now I want to talk about blessings, amazing blessings. Remember that old song that said, count your blessings, name them one by one? Man, Peter tells this church, either on the brink of or in the middle of persecution, don't forget, God loves you and He has blessed you so much. Verse 2, he says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Now, I looked at that and I see four Ps. Preachers love to do that stuff with same letters. I, I see the Trinity being involved in blessing us, but I want to tell you what I see. When he talks about the Father's foreknowledge, the foreknowledge of God the Father in your salvation, I see the plan. The Father's foreknowledge. That's why you're a Christian today, if you're a Christian. His plan. The process. 
He says, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification is being set apart, being made more like Christ. The Spirit is with you every day. And if you cooperate in your thinking and your behavior, you become more like Christ. The purpose, he says, for obedience to Jesus Christ. Do you know you weren't just saved to to go to heaven someday? We're saved for obedience to Jesus Christ. But the last one I find extremely precious. I call it purification. He says, and for sprinkling with His blood. Sprinkled with His blood. That's, That's where forgiveness comes from. From the blood of Christ shed on the cross. I don't know if you caught wind this week. A news anchor in the middle of a broadcast casually threw out there Admittedly, here's what he said, admittedly, Jesus was not perfect. Admittedly, Jesus was not perfect. I heard that and my mind raced to Hebrews 4.15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Why is that important? Because listen, if, if Jesus was not perfect, if He was just another human who happened to teach some cool things along the way, His blood doesn't do any more for you than if you got some of my blood on you. It just stains your garment. But listen, if He is God in flesh and without sin and you are sprinkled with His blood, you are set free and forgiven from sin. How precious is that? The the plan, the process, the purpose, the the purification. And yet, even in light of that, how many of us are, are trying to wheel and deal with God? Some of you know about wheeling and dealing. I'm a wheeler, wheeler and dealer when it comes to garage sales. I offended a lady a couple weeks ago. She was having a sale and she had two chairs that were $6 each and I brought it up to where she was taking stuff and I said, would you take $8? And she said, I'm not doing any bargains here today. This, I said, none? That's what you do at garage sale. This is not a garage sale. This is an estate sale. I said, okay, would you take 10 <laughs> she, <laughs> she said, now I'm getting offended. And all these people in the room look at us. She said, if I give you a deal, all these people are going to expect a deal too. So I paid the $12. But even as, as the one having a garage sale, yesterday we, we had one. And near the end of the day, we had a little booster seat at the end of the driveway. A lady says, that, that booster seat's covered with ants. I guess I had sat it in an anthill or something. I said, oh, the ants are free. <laughs> Listen, it's one thing to to wheel and deal at a garage sale. I actually enjoy that. But man, when when God calls us to live faithfully for Jesus, that's not a time to be wheeling and dealing. I know what you said, God, but but this is what's going on here. And if I do that, then this. And you understand, right? Listen, Paul reminded us on, on Friday at our elders meeting of a group called the Moravians that's worth a Google. They were led by a man named Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf in the 1700s. Okay, and he was an aristocrat 
living a fairly normal life in this world until he paid a visit where there was a painting by Domenico Fetti. The picture is called Ecce Homo, Behold the Man. It was a picture of Christ on the cross. And there were words underneath it that said, This have I done for you. Now what will you do for me? Changed his life. Changed his life. Pastor Paul shared with us that some of those Moravians in the movement he led would even sell themselves into difficult situations like slavery just to reach other slaves for Jesus. Because when you look at the cross and what Jesus has done, when God calls you to do something, the only answer is, yes, Master. Yes, my Savior. Yes, my Lord. It's not the time for wheeling and dealing when you realize how blessed you are. Listen, too, we're not just saved from things. Many of us emphasize that. I'm saved from sin. I'm saved from Satan. I'm saved from eternal death. We're also saved to some pretty cool things. The blessings go on. We'll keep on counting them. Things like a living hope and inheritance. Listen to verses 3 and 4. You're saved to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And I, that first part, let's talk about the living hope. You know why you have a living hope if you're a believer in Jesus Christ? Because you have a living Savior who walked out of His own tomb. That means whatever this world throws at you, even death, which many of us would put at the top of the list of bad things this world can throw at me, I have hope because my Savior's alive. I have a living hope because Jesus is alive. That's why I said you will have trials in this world, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You also have an inheritance in heaven that you're going to enjoy someday. Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. What's that mean? Cannot be destroyed, cannot be tainted, or worn down. Permanent. I want to close with a third, third truth that will help us hold on. Perseverance comes from perspective. Remembering the big picture. Because if we focus just on the here and now, especially when we're in the middle of a trial, it's going to be real easy to let go. Hey, Jesus, I didn't see that coming. I came to you for this and this and this, but this right here? No, you got to keep the big picture. Perseverance comes in perspective. Let me talk to you about some cool things from the past that have been done for you by God. Verse 10, Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. What is going on there? What's he saying? He's saying that when guys like Jeremiah and Isaiah were, were writing their prophecies down, 
about the Messiah who was to come. And they're wrestling with who's it going to be, when's it going to be. It wasn't for them. He said it's for you. The church. Mind blown. Like, whoa. Do you feel special? Like we talked about God's plan earlier that He had the church in mind when those guys were writing. It was for the church. How unusual are these blessings? Look look what He says at the end. He says they are things into which angels long to look. He's saying the blessings we have as believers in Jesus Christ, even the angels are mind blown. They're like, how does that work? What, what's, what are you doing? Whoa! We're blessed. And when we realize the blessings that have come to us from the past, in addition to that inheritance that comes in the future, that cannot be worn down or destroyed, not to mention that we're guarded right now, as he told us in verse 5, you say, how am I guarded as a believer in Jesus Christ? Well, he shared during his ministry, John 10, 28, says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Whoa. You see, if you only look at the trial, it makes sense to bail out. But if you look at all the blessings from the past, the fact that He's guarding you right now, what you've got to look forward to, makes all the sense in the world to keep on keeping on for Him. All you football fans, think about the, the, the high school teams. Think of what they go through in the summer. All the up-downs. Up-down, up-down, up-down. All the running in full gear, all the blocking and tackling drills in 100 degree heat. Now if a casual observer were to stop by and say, what are these guys doing? Like look, that one's bleeding, that one's throwing up. What's wrong with these guys? What would a fan of the team say? Oh, they're working hard because they want to get to the championship. That's why all this is worth it to them. They're looking forward to the goal. Nobody would go through a summer football camp just for the sake of summer football camp. They do it because they have their minds on a goal. And that's why they work hard. Peter is saying the same thing here. Don't just look at the trial. Because if you just look at the trial, yeah, it makes sense to bail. But if you look at where you're headed, the presence of Jesus Christ, it makes all the sense in the world to hold on. Stay faithful to Him. Like Paul said, 1 Corinthians 15, you remember his argument? Look, if Christ was not raised, then we will not be raised either, and this life is all there is. And if that's the case, just eat, drink, and be merry. And while you're at it, I'd add, just mow down anybody who's in your way, because it's all about you. Thankfully, he didn't stop there. He said Christ was raised. He was the first fruits. You will be raised, and that changes everything. He says, that's why I've suffered all these beatings and imprisonments and shipwrecks and nakedness and hunger and poverty because I know this is not all there is. There's a resurrection coming. And if we believe that, it changes everything. 
That's why his other metaphors make sense. Like, hey, he compares the, the Christian to a soldier. He said, a soldier is a, does not entangle himself in civilian affairs. He is wrapped up in his master's orders above everything else. That's why he brings out the picture of the farmer who works hard day after day and week after week, patiently waiting for the harvest. He brings out the picture of the athlete who competes according to the rules because he's running for the prize. When you realize where we're headed, perseverance just makes sense. I want to close with this story from the history of Billy Graham's life. And a man named Charles Templeton I'm, I'm just curious, because this was news to me. I know we've all heard of Billy Graham. Raise your hand if you've even heard of Charles Templeton. A few of you have. Good. Good. He was a uh, writer for a paper, lived a pretty promiscuous lifestyle, and then one night in his hotel room he realized the emptiness of it all and got down on his knees and, and cried out for, for Christ to save him. And he ended up joining Billy Graham on his preaching team. And it was just before Billy Graham's crusade in Los Angeles in 1949 when, when things went big. And Charles Templeton started wrestling with the truth of God's Word. He had these questions that he didn't know the answers to. And he talked with Billy about it. And it began to impact Billy's own thinking about the Word of God. Trials Questions, difficulties come in many forms. They, they land at different places. Charles Templeton said, because I cannot reconcile or figure out the answers I have in my head, I'm going to reject this. And he walked away. Billy Graham was, was troubled, not only because a friend of his had walked away, but it brought his own questions to mind. Is this really God's Word? It brings me great comfort to know Billy Graham had questions. <laughs> If you're like me, you have some too. He, he wrestled through it. He had Henrietta Mears, a good friend of his, who wrote the book, What the Bible is All About, encouraging him, Billy, it is the Word of God. Stand firm. You may not know every answer, but trust it. And here's what Billy Graham said on the brink of his crusade in Los Angeles. His own words, he said, if I was not exactly doubtful, I was certainly disturbed. I was trying to be on the level with God, but something remained unspoken. At last, the Holy Spirit freed me to say it. Father, I'm going to accept this as Thy Word by faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts, and I will believe this to be Your inspired Word. He then said he felt the power of God come upon him as he had not felt in months he added, not all my questions had been answered, but a major bridge had been crossed. In my heart and mind, I knew a spiritual battle in my soul had been fought and won. The story with Charles Templeton does not end though. Many of you have heard of a man named Lee Strobel who wrote The Case for Christ. He went to interview Charles Templeton more recently Charles Templeton was an elderly man, and as he sat with Charles Templeton and talked with him about his journey from where he believed in Christ to where he walked away, Charles Templeton said a couple things about the questions he had. He said, one of my questions was, 
I saw this picture in a magazine of a woman with her child dying in the middle of a famine. And I thought to myself, all that child needed was rain. I don't control the rain. You don't control the rain, Lee. God controls the rain. Why did this happen? That question stuck with him. And as they got to talking further, Charles Templeton revealed that he had Alzheimer's. That was another one that, that, that he allowed to come between him and God. He said, how would a loving God allow anyone to go through what I am going through? And it got emotional as Lee Strobel asked him, well, how do you feel about Jesus? And even though he had walked away, Charles Templeton started talking in glowing terms about the person of Jesus. And then he started crying. And he looked at Lee Strobel and he said, I miss Jesus. And I think about the two different responses. It's not that one man went through trials or had questions and the other one didn't. It's that one allowed his questions and the events of the, the present to be everything. One took his questions and what's going on in the present before God and said, this is difficult, but you're bigger and got the bigger perspective and had faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to persevere. You're going to have questions. You're going to have trials. You're going to have hard times. My friend Sheb Varghese wrote this after yet another lead singer of a Christian band said he walked away from the faith. He said this, no, no Christian should prop up or succumb to the illusion that the Christian life is free of doubts. The Christian life is no more free of doubts than marriage is free of pain, bitterness, frustration, and even heartbreak. Nobody say amen. Any peripheral reading of the biblical narrative makes clear that several faithful women and men of God were swarmed with doubts. But the men and women of faith are so called not because they lacked any doubts, but because they persevered in the midst of them. You will have trials. You will have questions. You will have doubts. The question is, will you persevere in faith? One man even said it this way, whatever comes, you can faith the future. He wasn't lisping. <laughs> you can faith the future. So if you're sitting here this morning, you say, man, I have been in the middle of a tough season or just watching the world around me, I admit, I feel the, the tug of war. I want to encourage you to do a couple things. First, we talked about that tension. You know, elect exile, trials and treasure, all that stuff. Admit the tension. It's okay, we all feel it. It's hard walking through this world. We feel awesome things knowing how God feels about us, but man, I don't want to get out of bed today on some days. Admit it and reach out to somebody. Reach out to somebody. We need each other when we're feeling that tension. Second, count your blessings. If you need to, go back over this passage and just write down each blessing you have from God because those are easily forgotten in the middle of the storm. Count your blessings and then realize that perseverance comes not just from looking at the here and now, but looking at all the blessings that have come to us from the past. The fact that God is guarding me right now in Christ 
and that one day I have an inheritance that can't be touched by anything this world throws at me. I have a living hope because I have a living Savior. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray that each one in this room knows that Savior. He has done everything needed to reconcile us to the Father. Yet we have an invitation to respond, to to repent of our sin and turn to Him in faith. Not just saying, yeah, I know He lived in history sometime, or I know He died, and maybe I even believe He rose again, but going beyond that to realizing, whoa, that impacts my life. Like, I am not righteous before a Holy Father. And if I continue on the course I'm in, I'm heading for an eternity apart from God. I need what Jesus did on the cross for me. I need to be sprinkled with His blood for my forgiveness. I need to trust in His resurrection for my victory. And today I make that decision. Jesus, I trust in You. If you've done that for the first time this morning, let us know. If you've done that in the past and you're feeling the tension of being an elect exile, I want to pray for you. Lord, it is so easy to get lost in what happened in our lives this morning or what's happening in the world seems like every hour of every day now. It's easy to get discouraged. I pray for the elect exiles in this room to lift their eyes to Jesus. To lift their eyes to that inheritance. It may be summer camp right now, but someday that glory's coming. Help us to keep on keeping on. To to live that full life in Jesus we talk about here where we worship You with abandon, God, and and we, we come together in community with each other and build strong relationships and, and we go out on that commission to the world to, to speak the good news. And then bring others along for the ride, realizing it's not just about us. There's people out there that need the hope, the encouragement some of us feel in Your Word today. Some of us know in Your Word today whether we feel it or not. Give us those opportunities to pass it on to a world that's sinking in despair. Thank You for the privilege of living in such a time as this. Thank You that You are strong when we are weak. Help us to keep on keeping on. Father, I I pray that even as our offering baskets are passed during this next song, that our giving would not be something separate from our worship, but one more extension of gratitude and and thankfulness for who you are and what you're doing in and through this church. And we pray that you'd help us to steward it wisely for your kingdom, for the purpose we're here. In Jesus' name, amen.